So we're going to come into a section that is, um, it's the blessing and cursing uh, chapters, not swear words, um, in case you're unfamiliar. You'll, you'll be familiar in just a moment. But there's, if you followed the Lord, you're going to be blessed. If you didn't follow the Lord, curses were going to be upon you. And um, we're going to read um, a portion. I'm not going to read all of them, but um, you'll, enough to get a feel for what's happening. Um, we also are going to see the transition of leadership going from Moses to Joshua. And then Joshua being encouraged to stand fast. Um, we're also going to see that um, the Lord is, is going to promise to Israel that the land is theirs and they will be blessed even if they disobey and they will disobey. And you're led off to the farthest parts, you'll be brought back into the land. And so... Um, We'll take some time to consider what um, some have labeled as a Deuteronomic covenant. Probably not one that you have heard. You know, Abrahamic, Davidic, yes, Mosaic, which we've been talking about. But we'll look at this one. Some see the Deuteronomic as just another reiteration of this, but yeah, we'll get to it. So that, that's kind of where we're headed this evening. But let's begin there in, um, let's see... Yeah, actually, it's chapter 27, I think, is where I want to begin. So um, let's, let's take a look there at verse 1. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord your God has given you, that you shall set up very, for yourselves very large stones, whitewash them with lime. You shall write on them, so this is kind of like if you're, it's graffiti, right? It's, it's, it's biblical graffiti, you know. Get your background, paint it white, and then put this up here. But it's the it's commands of the Lord. Uh, you shall write, them, write on them all the words of this law when you've crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God has given you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today, and you shall whitewash them with lime. And there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God. And this isn't going to happen until Deuteronomy, uh, Joshua chapter 8, but he's telling them this is what you're going to do when you get over there. Uh, there, shall, there you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use an iron on them. You shall build with whole stones the altar of the Lord your God and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. So you come in the land. This is the first place worship site that they were to establish. And so this is, this is what is being commanded. Um, Verse 9, then Moses and the priests and the Levites spoke to all Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God. And that's why we walk in obedience, because we're his. We are his people. And as his people, we walk in obedience to him. We're not freelance. We're not out there doing our own thing. We are connected with the creator of the universe, and he has put his name upon us. And so we walk with pride in the name of the Lord and being connected with that. The commandments of God are not burdensome. They are a blessing. And we're happy to identify ourselves as the people of God. And when we are not walking in that love relationship, that's when the commandments of God become a burden. That's when it becomes very hard. So he, he tells them, you, you're going to go up on Ebal, you're going to build this altar. Now, um, in verse 11, um, he says, Then Moses commanded the people on the same day, saying, These shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people when you've crossed over the Jordan. And he names the tribes. And then verse 13, And these shall stand on Mount Ebal to curse. So you had the blessing section. And you had the cursing section. Don't take it personally, okay? It's just, just imagine, right? You have Gerizim and you have Ebal. And in the middle of this valley, so these two hills, and come in the middle of this valley, is a site called Shechem. And so you'll see that. Matter of fact, can we go ahead and put up that first slide? And um, I realize it might be a little hard to see, but um, uh, to the right, you're right there, you have Joshua's altar. And uh, that's the one 
that he was told to build. That is on Mount Ebal. It's on the, I guess it'd be like the north um, eastern, eastern? Yeah, I think it's the northeastern slope. Could be western, I don't think so. I think it's eastern. Um, and then if you come down, the circle is where Shechem is, and then you come up to the left, you have Mount Gerizim. Um, go on to the next one. This is just an aerial view of um, Mount Ebal, where that, that um, actual altar is located. And then these next couple of slides um, actually show you the altar. They found it. They found this in like 19, I think it was around 1982. Um, archaeologist, um, last name is Zertal, he, he found this and he, you know, accredited, uh, accredited this with that. And um, a lot of people rejected it and they didn't believe it. Um, but they built this. Now, when they dug this out, they found actually two altars. And so you're looking at the one that is the, the later altar. Um, but if we move on to that graphic slide, um, you can see the round altar that is kind of inside the rectangular altar. You see kind of like a platform that would almost, a ramp that would take you up there. And that was, you know, exactly how they were supposed to build it. And it's that ladder, or it's that round altar, they believe that, it's, that is dated to um, the days of Joshua and, um, and the conquest. So um, now if you remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 24, we read this, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the Western Sea. But the point I want to see where um, every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. So there on top of Mount Ebal, they have found, um, and you can start working through these slides here, they've found, here's a little graphic picture of a footprint um, enclosure. And it, the walls are about three feet high, um, and you can kind of see where the activity is on that little uh, footprint. Um, some of these are clearer than the others, and I'll show you in just a moment, you'll see. So that's kind of the graphic of it. The actual real slide picture of this is uh, there, and if you can kind of follow the outline. Now, they don't know why. They don't know why they find, and they found a handful of these throughout the central um, hill section of um, Israel. But where they find them is at conquest sites. And at this site in particular, we know that this was not just a conquest site, but this was an altar site. This is a site where they were obeying what is said to have happened right here. Now, the, the next two slides, and I, I can't tell you exactly where they're from, but can you see that? It might be a little bit hard. I'm going to put up that. That one actually looks like a footprint quite clearly. But you can imagine over time, things get knocked down, things get moved. Um, and just in case you can't make it out there, you have that, that red outline of, the, of that. So why are these things there? Oh, Nobody can say definitively, so I'm not making a biblical certain statement, but it would seem like every place on which the sole of your foot treads. We're like, all right, here's our foot. We're doing something significant here. Let's make a big footprint. So nah, the one, the going back to Ebal, I think it's like, oh, it's three acres or so worth of land. Um, and that, of course, was where a lot of the worship activity would have taken place. So... Um, you have Mount Ebal, and then there's this altar, Joshua 8.30, where they're going to build it. Um, uh, Adam Zertal, I think that's his first time, he's the one that founded in the early 80s, um, disputed. Um, has, many have gone back through more archaeological discoveries, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, have really nailed it down to the time of the conquest. The, you know, you know around, would have been around 14 uh, 06 at this point in time, that um, that round altar would have been built as they made their way into the land. Um, now, in chapter 27, from verses um, on down, you can you begin to see the just scan the verses, <laughs> right? Uh, cursed is the one. Um, cursed is the one. Just over and over again, it talks about the curses that will come for those who disobey the Lord. So. We've read about this. The Lord has talked about this. And um, so it is from Mount Ebal where they pronounce these curses. And I want you to consider with me Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. Why are they saying curse? Because you have broken what? The law. And if you break the law, there's a curse 
that comes with breaking the law. If you break one part of the law, how much of the law do you break? And if you're under one part of the curse of the law, you're under the entirety of the curse of the law. That's why you don't want to try and live out the Mosaic law today for many reasons. One is um, you better get your threads right, right? Do you remember? When you make your clothes, like this is all linen, so this would be good. I'm not sure about the jeans. I'm not sure if they're all cotton or there might be a mixture in there. But if I'm wearing cotton jeans and then I'm also got some, you know, something else going on there, then that would be, that would be wrong. I'd be breaking the law. So the, the, these were, I mean, th- there's a lot in the law. So when people say, yeah, I keep the law. No, you don't. Show me the label on your clothes, like all of them. I'm going to do a closet inspection, and I'm going to find out if you have any mixed fabrics in your wardrobe. So, but let's look at this. Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Not those who can do the works, right? Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might be upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So they are announcing the curses from this this elevated place. But Jesus took on our curse, our sinfulness, and his physical body from that elevated place of the cross, that we might be forgiven, that we might be redeemed. Here's the reality. This is a true statement. We are either under the blood or we are under the curse. And we each make the choice of where we're going to be. You come to Jesus Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you understand that and you come to Jesus and you realize that he was lifted up and he was cursed and the wrath of God, Isaiah 53, was poured out upon him so it wouldn't have to be poured out upon mankind. And if you will come and you will confess him as Lord and Savior, then you will have that curse lifted off of you and you will be under the blood of the lamb and the death that is associated with the curse will pass over you if you follow me. So this is, um, it is interesting to consider these curses. So they have one place where they're uh, shouting these down. Into chapter 28, um, uh, verse 14, um, we read, you shall turn aside, um, uh, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I've commanded you this day to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. So you gotta be completely obedient to all that is written. And we need to be mindful. We need to be careful. We don't begin to think, well, I've got most of them now, and it's okay, right? No, we are to be completely um, committed to the Lord. Now, in, in chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, you have the blessings that will come um, from Mount Gerizim. Um, and you can you read through those on your own. And... If we abide in the Lord, so taking this over into the New Testament, we understand the cursed cursed side of Mount Ebal, but how do we understand Mount Gerizim? I think the way we should understand Mount Gerizim is that in, in Jesus, we experience the fullness and the blessings. Every spiritual blessing is um, in Christ Jesus, right? It, we, it, they're ours, and we have this. And Jesus taught us that if we would abide in him, if we remain connected with him, John chapter 15, as the branches, that we are going to have that blessing. We're going to be fruitful. And so how important, important it is for us to walk this out. Now, in the rest of chapter 28, verses 15 through 68, there's an elaboration of the consequences for disobeying the Lord. So chapters 27 and 28, Ebal, Gerizim, um, Shechem down in the valley. Um, you can imagine the, the, what it would have sounded like. I've read some interesting um, uh, ideas about the amphitheater effect that would have happened around this section, and you can go search that out on your own. Not critical to our study, just an interesting fact. But I do want to talk to you about something that is not critical to our study, definitely related and definitely interesting. And I have taken some time to to share this 
before. So if we go back to this idea, um, and maybe you just go back to that slide and put up one of the um, uh, pictures of one of the altars there. Um, that, that's that altar, then think of the round one here, uh, Joshua chapter eight, verse 30, where they built this, where they, they made these sacrifices. Um, that there was something that was going on here at this site. And um, in the 80s, so 82, 83, 84, 85, right around this section, um, Zertal was doing the digs and he was finding this site and he came to this conclusion. Uh, again, much debated conclusion that people had, but it's, it's pretty widely accepted now. But there's been a, a recent discovery that we've talked about previously there on Mount Ebal, and where they found it would have been right where that circular altar is. Um, and if you want to geek out on this, okay, there's um, uh, Bible and Spade um, magazine, their last edition um, has, is dedicated to this entire article. But, uh, or this, the, the, the entire magazine's uh, designated to this, this discovery. So, but when he dug this out, and this is what archeologists often do, they'll, they'll go in and they're beginning, to, they're looking for the structures. And so they're taking out a lot of dirt, right? A lot of fill, a lot of stone, a lot of rubble. And so they'll take these and they also, they'll, you'll hear of like archeological dump sites. That doesn't mean it's trash, it just means as a dump site. And, and so he never went through those. But back in, I think it was you know, right before COVID um, uh, descended upon planet Earth, um, there was a, a archeologist, Scott Stripling, who was digging through the dump pile, or he's sorting through the dump that came out of that altar site or the round site. Now he didn't go through the material. And he um, went through and he did what's called a wet sifting project. So, how many of you have done the wet sifting project? If you've gone to Israel with me, you've probably done it. And so when you go there, I mean, it's like the wet sifting you know, process, technology. What's that? That sounds like, that's gotta be elaborate. Do you remember when you were a kid and you dug up a rock and you got a garden hose and you squirted the rock off? There you go. Um, and so, but what it does is it reveals what's you know, underneath the dirt and the soil. So they are going through, they have these screens, all this you know, material comes in. And when we go to Israel, we try to always do this. There's you know place, last time we did it, I think we found, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine different coins, um, ancient coins. And so it's a lot of fun. You find bones, you find glass, you can find nails, um, you find ceramic pieces, you find all kinds of stuff. But what he found on this day, as they're doing this wet sifting project from that dump site, from that little round altar, was this thing right here. And this is what is called a, um, a curse tablet. Um, it's the size of a postage stamp. So I mean, it, I mean, you know, just a little thing in the palm of your hand. And it's, it's made of lead and it's a little booklet and they would, the ancients would write with an iron pen. You can actually, I think Job talks about this. Um, and, and they would write on this. So as they were doing this wet sifting project, the, the material that came from the altar in the 80s had sat there since you know, 1400 BC. They're now going through it and as they're squirting all the stuff off, they found this, this little thing, which I mean, would be so easy to pass over, wouldn't it? But they noticed it. And so they began to look at it and what they ended up finding out was that there was writing. But they couldn't open it because it was kind of frozen shut. So they went through this process of doing all kinds of different um, x-rays. The next slide shows you a few characters of um, uh, proto-alphabetic uh, Hebrew, okay? So early inscriptions. And um, each of these, they were able to go back and they were able to work out. Now, this is a clear, cleaned up picture. This is not how clear they came out in the x-ray, just to, to, to be fair. But what you find here is the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh. And so they became very excited. Well, if we move on to the next slide, they ended up going through and working through this entire section. Now, be, don't read it. Don't, don't cheat. Don't read it. Um, go back to chapter 27 real quick. Look at verse 15. First word of, of, of uh, chapter 27, verse 15 is what? Cursed. Cursed. What about 16? Cursed. 17? 
curse, 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 curse. All right? It's a Mount Ebal. This is found at Mount Ebal. Look what they wrote on this little postage stamp sized lead tablet. Cursed, 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 cursed by God, by the God Yahweh. Now, if you hadn't just, if you're not familiar with chapter 27, this just sounds like a, a random out of the place. Why did they say curse over and over and over again? But if you're reading Deuteronomy 27 and you're at the place where you're pronouncing curses, it suddenly doesn't seem out of place anymore, does it? And then the name Yahweh on that little tablet, this is the oldest um, finding written name of Yahweh anywhere. Again, this is, they just found this, you know, they released it in uh, 2022, the findings. And so this was found there. Now, um, what's key to all of this is the dating of it. And so um, I'm going to read. Some of you will love this, and you're like, wow, this is great. Others are going to just like, you know, you know, check the time. I don't know. Look at, look, but I find this kind of stuff really exciting. I want to read to you from the article, and I'm, I'm kind of condensing this. I'm not reading the full section. I got about, you know, five, six sentences maybe to read. And this is um, speaking to the dating and the timing of it. So it's both the, the letters and the inscription that they found and the style of it. And what is the time in which they'd find the style of those letters? At what time in history do they find other places written where they find those types of inscriptions? And so they're, they're trying to narrow it down, and they do. But while they're digging out and going through all that stuff, you know what else they're finding? They're finding all kinds of pottery. And if you don't, pottery to an archaeologist, I'm going to overstate it, so this is hyperbole, but it's, it's similar to finding a, um, not as good as a coin, but it's like a coin that's going to give you a date because the pottery changed, changes over time. And so when they find a piece of pottery, um, they have a database nowadays, and they find it, and they can just match it, and boom, it'll tell you exactly um, what time frame it is from. Both of these things are converging, the, le the letters and the findings of ceramics. So let me read to you. While some letters preserve archaic features only found during the first half of the second millennium, most letters exhibit more developed forms. None of these forms, however, continue past about 1250 BC. That date is very significant because we believe that Israel arrived here 150 years before that. The liberals who don't believe in a literal exodus and don't believe that Joshua really led the conquest will put the dating of the conquest around 1200 BC. And so when they go through all these archaeological sites, um, they say, well, he, you know, Joshua came in in 1200 BC, but all of these um, conquest sites are 1400 BC, so it can't be Israel. But the Bible says that they, the Exodus happened in 1446 and they came in around 1400 BC. So this is telling us that this, the, you know, the letters here, the style of the letter totally fits with the time of a 1400 BC conquest. It goes on. A conclusion, so that date, a conclusion substantiated by the ceramic evidence at Mount Ebal site suggesting a date approximately during the late 15th to 14th centuries BC. It is a combination of these paleographic date and the divine name Yahu or Yahweh used within the curse formula on a lead tablet found at Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses, that strongly suggests an ancient Israelite origin of the object dated to the time of Joshua's conquest of Canaan, 1400 BC. I, that is so significant. That's from Stripling, uh, Leavitt, and uh, Vanderveen. And so they are saying, so you have this, people have dismissed the Old Testament. They've dismissed the conquest. They've dismissed the Exodus based on the dating. They also have dismissed everything we've been reading for the last couple of years through the Old Testament here, these opening books. Moses didn't write that because there was no 
There was no um, you know, script that they were using at that time in history. As a matter of fact, they'll go on and say as that the name of Yahweh didn't even come till much later, like I don't know, I think 700, 800 BC. And this is what they say. They said that until that little postage stamp thing came up. Because now they have the name Yahweh there. Which means, dating it at 1400 BC, means that this is the time. We're, this is being written. We're like right, you know, right there at 1400 BC. What we're seeing that Abraham wrote, I mean, not here, Moses wrote, and they're saying there was no, there was no alphabet available or, you know, written uh, uh, skills at that time for the Hebrews. Well, there you have it. The little piece of archaeology matters. Now, I obviously you can tell I get, I get excited about this kind of stuff. So what does that mean? Does that mean that this little lead tablet, cursed tablet as they're calling it, has proved that the Bible is true? I'll tell you what, the Bible is true, period. The Bible is true. If we find interesting archeological pieces that tell us that, hey, this completely lines up, we can get excited about it and we can rejoice over it. But it's not, it does not prove, right? it does not establish the truthfulness of scripture. That, that is all on its own. We don't need anything from archeology span to, to believe this. But I think this is a good lesson because for, for you know, modern liberal scholarship is obsessed with this idea that you know, the, the you know, first five books uh, that we would say of Moses were written by all these different authors and it wasn't written until much later. And now they dig something up and they're all wrong. And the Bible is right as it has always been. So if, you do, if the evidence is not lining up with the word of God, better wait until some more information comes in to make sense of it. I wonder how many of walked away from the Lord saying, well, this, you can't even trust it. Because, I mean, the Bible says Moses wrote it, Moses wrote it, Moses wrote it. I mean, that, that's problematic to me. If, uh, if the Bible says it, and yet it's, it's not going to be for, you know, whatever, 1,600 more years before it actually can be written? Or, you know, 600 years before it can be written? That's problematic when it says it's being written. So, this is a great discovery, all found here at this little curse site um, on Mount Ebal. So there you go. You can um, have fun with that. You can study on that if you like. I do find these things to be quite helpful. Now, turning over into chapter 29. Chapter 29. So read with me a couple of these opening verses. It says, these are the words of the covenant. I want you to zero in on that word covenant. These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. So they haven't made it over to Mount Ebal, right? They're, they're in Moab right now on the other side of the Jordan. And he says, do this. And then notice the next line. Besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb, or another word for a name for Horeb would be what? Sinai, okay, Mount Sinai. So this is, that would be the Mosaic covenant. So he says, write this covenant besides the covenant. So it's differentiating between the covenant that they had and the covenant that they were to, you know, whitewash the, and by the way, on that altar, they found these large stones where they say, could have easily been whitewashed and they could have easily put the Ten Commandments. Obviously, it's not still there, but they found the stones that could have been. And so, so here you have this. Now, some would say what he goes on to describe here in chapter 30, is because when you, this is where that covenant will be described, um, was actually just, in the, it just as an extension um, of the Mosaic Covenant. Whereas others, and I would lean in this direction, definitely would lean in this direction, is that this is not the Mosaic Covenant, it's an extension of the Abrahamic Covenant and the specific part of the Abrahamic Covenant that says that the land would be theirs. You'll see why in just a moment. And so um, this is often referred to as the Deuteronomic Covenant. You can see, though, in verse 1 that it's distinct from 
the Mosaic Covenant. I'll let you search that out and study that just a little bit. But turn with me over into chapter 30. And there's a lot of good stuff in chapter 30. But, um, and actually, you know what? I want, to, I want to make sure I don't skip this. Well, I'll come back to it. Remind me to come back to uh, the end of 29. But in chapter 30, um, just to follow that thought of the covenant, I want you to track with me down through verse 10. It says, Now shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. So he says, listen, if you disobey me, I'm going to send you out. You're going to go out among all the other nations. And you're going, because you've worshipped these other gods, you're going to be taken out of this place. And so this being, if we could just go through and think of, um, I think about six or seven different points here about this Deuteronomic covenant. First one, um, you're going to be dispersed among all the nations, and we know why, because of, of their disobedience. So verse one, one aspect of this covenant, you're going to be dispersed. Number two, and you return to the Lord your God. So there's going to be a repentance. They're going to go out of the land. They're going to be, think Babylon, think Assyria, think other places that they have been driven. And when you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and all your children with, uh, children with all your heart and with all your soul. Um, so you're going to come back to me. You're going to go out, but you're going to come back to me. And then verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you, so this is the emphasis here, and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. Interesting verse to think about is Matthew chapter 24, verse 31. This is the uh, Olivet Discourse. This is the last day's teaching of Jesus. And he says this. Um, and let me just back up just to follow. I'll go, it's verse 31 I want to focus on, but I'm going to read 29 down to verse 31. Immediately after the tribulation of, of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So there will be signs in the heavens, right? Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now here it is. And he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And this is where people usually say, see, verse 31, that's talking about the rapture. Nuh-uh. It's taking us back into the um, Old Testament is taking us back actually into the promise that when you've been driven to all these other nations, I'm going to bring you back from all these different locations. And so the third point here is at the return of the Messiah, there's going to be the final gathering of Israel back into the land and that will happen at the second coming of the Lord. Verse four, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, so continuing this thought. From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Verse 5, then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your father. So here is the promise of the land, that they're going to be in the land. That's why I said this is connected to the Abrahamic covenant. Um, think, um, you know, uh, chapter 12, chapter 17 of Genesis where there, he's promised you're going to be given this land. So you're going to sin, you're going to be taken to the nations, you're going to return to me. One day there'll be a final end gathering that's going to take place, but we can see during the Babylon exile they were brought back in and other times as well. Um, but at the end of the days they will be gathered again and the land is going to be theirs. He'll bring you back to the land which your fathers possessed. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, here's the national conversion that's going to take place. When Jesus returns and brings them back, the rest of Israel that remains is going to come and they're going to put their faith and trust in the Lord. Now, when you read this, this sounds very much like the new covenant, doesn't it? 
that he's going to write upon your hearts. Think of Jeremiah. Think of Ezekiel. And so this is, this is kind of showing what the Lord is going to do. And they are going to all return because they're all going to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he's been raised from the dead. And then verse 7 um, and also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. You can think of the nations that are gathering and the judgment that the Lord has just brought upon them. And then lastly in verse 9, then the Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your body and in the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land for good. The Lord will again rejoice over you for good as you rejoice, rejoice over your fathers. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the, this book of the law, and if you return to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now, they had moments, again, like the Babylonian return where they were exiled and came back. But there is one more that's going to happen at the end of days that we referenced in Matthew 24 that will be fulfilled. So here's a, some people call this the, the land covenant promise. Um, and th in the essence of it is this, um, is that they were, the, the land was going to be theirs. Um, it was going to be an unconditional promise and it was going to be permanent. But possession was going to be dependent on their obedience that would come and go. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, that's exactly what we read with Israel. And they would be driven or they would be, have an enemy that would come into their land. And then they would go out and they would be brought back in. And I believe that is exactly what is going to happen at the end of days. But in verse 6, he talks about how their hearts were to be circumcised. Now, in Genesis 17... Um, the Abrahamic covenant is established and the sign of that covenant uh, was that God would bless the descendants of Abraham that he would give them the land was physical circumcision. But what he's calling them to here is to have their hearts circumcised. That is that their allegiance would be for the Lord and for him only. And this is reiterated in the New Testament. Romans uh, 2.28 says this, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the what? Heart. It's the heart. There was that physical marking of the bodies that happened. There was a physical sign of the covenant that they were in. But in the last days, under the new covenant, it's our hearts that are to be set aside to the Lord. He, right? And of course, in the Old Testament, the Lord wanted that as well. I'm not implying that. So it's a circumcision, that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And again, in Colossians 2.11, it says, In him you were also circumcised, we were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What's that? The Lord wants our hearts to be totally set towards him. Anything that would take our allegiance or take our um, zeal or take our loyalty or take our attention off of the Lord. He says, cut that off. Cut it out. Have your heart completely dedicated to me and no one else. And this is an appropriate thing for any bride to do is to have her heart completely dedicated and devoted to her groom. And we, the church, are the bride of Christ. And it is um, unacceptable for the bride of Christ to have other lovers. There should be one passion and one love. The Lord should be first, which does not mean there can be a lot of close seconds. Um, not true, but I promise you that if I was to tell my wife, honey, don't worry, you're first. And I was to say it like that. She goes, I'm first. So I mean, well, who's second? All right. No, there is no other second. So we don't mean it like that, all right? It's him and it's him alone. Our hearts are totally dedicated towards the Lord. So although we're reading a passage here in the Old Testament, um, it's looking forward to the national conversion. But we actually, although we're not Israel physically, we are Gentiles, we have already entered into this new covenant. But Israel nationally has not. But one day, um, they will enter in. Um, 
So yes, it's an important passage. In verses 11 through 14 here in chapter 30, we read, this is the commandment which I command you today. Um, it's not too mysterious for you. And so if you look back at to the, uh, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord your God. So chapter 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord your God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Now, in verse 11, for this command which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. You know, have you ever heard somebody dismiss following Jesus or begin to backpedal from Jesus by saying something like, well, you know, there are so many interpretations. The Bible is so confusing. There are so many different ideas out there. I mean, who's right? I just don't know. Nobody really knows, so that's why I just, I can't really commit. Well, God, the author, says, no, I think it's, I think it's attainable here. <laughs> I think this is knowable. And if you were to summarize the Bible into two statements, it would be to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's attainable. I think our minds can wrap around that. That I should have the creator, God revealed in scripture who sent his son to die on the cross to forgive my sins. I can understand that. That is, that is attainable. That is knowable. So when you hear people begin to say something like, well, this is just dark. It's mysterious. It's, you know, so many opinions. It's almost a sure sign they've never read it or they have not read it lately and they're hearing somebody else feel their ears. This is not a complicated message. That is not to say there are not complicated verses. There are some complicated verses. But the message of scripture is not complicated. And, um, you know, go talk to some of our, you know, third graders. They'll tell you. They'll tell you all about it. And they understand it. In verses 15 through 20, there is a command for them to choose that which is knowable, right? To choose this revelation that has been given to them. In verse 14, actually, it's back up. It says, but the word is near you, in your mouth. Does this sound familiar? Sounds like something we'd read in Romans, right? And in your heart, that you may do it. See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and you worship, and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall utterly perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you that have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, right? That both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life in the length of your days that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Now, we know that they're gonna disobey and we know they're gonna return and we know the Lord's gonna bless again. And this is a pattern that we find in the Old Testament. But that there was plenty of generations that experienced that total perishing because of their rebellion. So a, a similar word is spoken by Jesus concerning the Pharisees when he was on this earth. And he says, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. Now, I, I imagine, you know, my five-point Calvinist friends are getting really uncomfortable right now as we talk about choosing life. And as we talk about the words of Jesus saying, you know, you are not willing, you're not willing to make the choice. You're not willing to come to me that you might have life. And so it's like, well, we must make a choice. We must, as a matter of our own will, with our own mouth, make a confession to follow Jesus Christ. Now, nobody comes to the Lord on their own. The Lord draws them. But we must be a willing participant in that process. So how do we 
How do we work this out? How do we solve the mystery between God being sovereign and choosing and yet us having to choose? How do we work that out? Well, not real well, actually, to be truthful, okay? It remains somewhat of a mystery, and that's why we have people lining up on either sides of this, this debate. But this is my take. God is sovereign. Think of this amazing, universal, sovereign umbrella. And underneath this amazing, universal, sovereign umbrella is this smaller umbrella, and it's called man's free will. God has sovereignly given us the capacity to do what he just, what Moses commanded us to do, and that is to choose. Old covenant, yeah, okay. Jesus in the New Testament said they are not willing to come to me that they might have life. So we must make that response. Well, when God's ready to save me, he'll just save me, he'll pick me up, and he'll throw me over there, and I'll be in the saved corner, and that's the way it'll work. No, that's not the way it's gonna work. You must make a choice on your own. If you have not made that choice to, as it says, we read here, make a confession with your mouth, you need to do that. Well, I don't know, this is really hard. No, it's not mysterious. Well, there's so many changes. This is not difficult. The word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. And so what is the word? I believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for my sins, that he rose from the dead three days later, and that he has forgiven my sins if I put my faith and trust in him. It's in your mouth. That's simple. That's simple. That's not complicated. But you must make that choice. So he warns them after going through the blessings and the cursings, he warns them, don't, don't, don't make a mistake here. Now as we move into chapter 31, we come into the chapter where um, we begin to see Joshua taking a more prominent role. So let's read a couple of these verses, one through three. Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and 40 years in the wilderness, leading the nation. I'm 120 years old. I can no longer go out and come in Interpretation, I'm a really old dude, um, and I can't move very good anymore. Also, the Lord has said to me, yeah, there's that part too, Moses, right? I'm not going to go in because my knees are bad. Yeah. Oh, and also, the Lord said, I can't. He said, you shall not cross over the Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you just as the Lord has said. So I'm not going, the Lord is going to go, and Joshua is going to go as the Lord has said. And then in verse 4, he says, but remember what's happened on this side of the Jordan. On this side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, these guys have suffered defeat, all right? They have, they've, they've been destroyed, and this is what the Lord is going to continue to do. He's going to continue to give you this victory, in verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. The Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, sounds like what chapter? Anybody? Okay. Hebrews, and then Joshua 1, 9. Yeah. If you look in Joshua, and, and it's interesting because you're talking to Joshua here, and if you go to Joshua, you find the same statement. So, Here's the thing to ponder. Was he afraid? Well, the commandment is don't be afraid, and it's given to him a couple of times. So it very well may be. But here's another thought to consider. He was not the guy that was afraid 40 years earlier. Joshua and Caleb were not afraid. But the warning of don't make the mistake that was made 40 years earlier is inappropriate. So whether he was feeling the trepidation or it's just like, hey, you're about to go into the land, don't do what you did at Kadesh Barnea and get afraid and chicken out and not go in. Remember Og, remember Sion, they've been destroyed. God's gonna be with you. Don't be afraid. And, and here's, this is not a hard one to apply to our lives, is it? <laughs> Fear. Fear of stepping out into what God is leading you and guiding you to do. Yeah, but what if it doesn't work out? But what if it does? But what if it does? 
Well, I don't know for a fact that this is what God wants me to do. You probably never will until it's done and you can look back with hindsight and history. At the moment that he's calling you to do something, it's going to be what? Faith. It's going to be faith. And the thing that's going to seek to undermine your faith is going to be fear. And that's why they didn't go into the land. He's like, don't, don't make this mistake again. And so he's publicly charged in verses 7 and 8. Um, to be of good courage. So Moses says, come here in the middle of everybody, be strong and of good courage, verse seven, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their father. So, all right, I'm, I'm charging you in front of everybody. You've got to be strong. You must be courageous. Now, verses nine through 13, um, there's a commandment that every seven years during the Feast of Tabernacle, they were to read the law. So they would come together and they would sit down and they were to rehearse all of this. So it was always in the mind of uh, every generation several times throughout their lifetime. They didn't have a pocket squirrel back then where they could just take to their house and unfurl it and begin to read. They were dependent upon hearing it read for them. So this was to happen every seven years. And a good reminder that we need to constantly be taking in the word of God ourselves and reminding us of the word of God and what he expects from us. So um, verses 14 and 15, Joshua is ordained as, as the leader. Um, and the land, you know, it's like, okay, this is the guy that's now going to lead you. And, um, you know, the transition of leadership takes place. But Moses is going to again speak of their coming failures. I mean, it's just like, don't disobey. Well, you're going to disobey. And this is what's going to happen. So in verses 16 through 18, you can see that again. The Lord said to Moses, behold, you will rest with your fathers and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. So, you know, Israel, the wife of Yahweh is going to go and she's going to turn into a prostitute. A spiritual prostitute that's going to be unfaithful to her husband, Yahweh. And he says, this is going to happen. So verse 17, his anger is going to be aroused against them. Verse 18, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all their evil. So again, don't do it, you're gonna do it. Now in verses 19 through 22, Moses is commanded to write a song, which is contained in chapter 32. Um, and he, the point of this song is write this song and in the song, talk about what I've done um, and then talk about their failures. And, and the, the point of this is I'm going to give you this song and you're going to teach your kids this song. Everybody's going to know this song. So it'll be in your mind. Don't disobey because if you disobey, bad stuff happens to you. It's going to be this catchy Hebrew tune, right, that you're going to pass down from one generation to the next generation. Do that. And when you disobey, because you're not going to listen to the song, when you disobey and you're in the land and everybody's looking at you and they're like, what happened? You're going to think, oh yeah, that song, that song that we used to sing, it came to pass. And so this is the point of the song that we're going to read here in chapter 32. We're not going to read all of it, we're going to read a good portion of it. And um, you might want to think back to the other song of Moses that was written when they came out of the Red Sea. They came out of the Red Sea and they had a celebration song, right? Um, the chariots going down into the deep and, and all the rest. So, but now this is a, a different song of Moses. So verse 32, chapter 32, verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as rain drops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. Think of the song written by Graham Kendrick every time I read this. Ascribe greatness to our God. His, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all of his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteousness and upright as he. Be very, 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 very careful before you ever rise, raise your hand and point the finger in the face of God. For the circumstances of your life 
or maybe for something that goes on written 4,000 years ago that you don't understand every in and out. What you do know is that God has no injustice in him. So if you need more information, call it more information. Don't stick your finger in the face of the one who is true and upright altogether. Verse five, they've corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who brought you? Has he not made you and established you? Why are you rebelling against this guy? I mean, of all the people to rebel against. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple or the pupil of his eye. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign god with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan and goats. So that that was the, the breed to have, right? The breed of Bashan. With the choicest wheat and you drank wine, the blood of grapes. So I was like, I, I just poured out my blessings all over you. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. And here's the problem with blessing, everybody. When you get fat, when you have blessing, when you have things in your hand, it is easy to forget the Lord. We talked about this on Sunday, right? If you knew that $100 more was gonna make you grow fat and obese and forget the rock of your salvation, would you want the $100? Or would you say, take it away and an extra 100 just for good measure's sake? And so this is what happens. And so, but it's just, it, as you go through this, you can continue to read um, through this, this song. It's a long song. I want to pick up um, here towards the end of verse 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to all Israel, and he said, set your hearts on all the words, not some of them, which I testify among you today. You shall command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. And I love this, this verse 47, this, this first phrase, for it is not a futile thing for you. Don't ever let the idea of obeying the commands of Scripture settle in your heart as a useless thing, as an empty thing, or I'm just going through the motion. No, it's not futile, and it's not empty. It wasn't for Israel. It is certainly not for us as the church of Jesus Christ. And by this word, you shall prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. So a word that was specific to the nation of Israel. But you know, as long as we abide in the word of God, we'll continue to experience the blessings of the Lord and we will be fruitful. Now, verses 48 through 52. um, Moses is going to go up onto Mount Nebo and there he is going to pass away. Got a map for you. You can go ahead and put that up um, under chapter, if you got that. Yeah, thank you. So again, maybe a little hard. We've got the Dead Sea and then heading north. Um, off to the right, you got a little red circle, right? Yeah, a little red circle right, right at the top of that uh, Dead Sea um, is Mount Nebo, and right across that is where Jericho was. And then you have the Jordan River that's going up to the Sea of Galilee. If you keep going to the left on that map, you would go up the mountains and go right into Jerusalem. So, um, yeah, he's going to pass away. Moses sees the land. 
but he's not going to enter into the land. Chapter 33, uh, Moses pronounces um, blessings upon them. I want to read a couple of verses at the beginning and a couple at the end. So let's read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 33. Now this is a blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, or Edom. He shone from Mount uh, Paran, and he came with 10,000 saints from his right hand and came a fiery law for them. Yes, he loves the people. All his saints are in your hand. They sit down at your feet. Everyone uh, receives your words. Moses commanded a law for us, a heritage of the congregation of Jacob. And he was king in Jeshurun. So this is the name for Israel. When the leaders of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel gathered together. So he then breaks out and going through the 12 tribes and he speaks a word um, over each of these tribes. I'm going to leave it for you to read that. You might want to think about reading Genesis 49 as a, as a parallel when Jacob uh, pronounced blessing over each of the 12 tribes. But there at the end, um, the Lord, um, verses 26 through 29, um, just says, you guys are a blessed people. <laughs> um, who's, been, who's a people like you that has um, God as, as the one that helps them and is their shield and um, causes enemies to submit. And we can say too, I mean, how blessed we are to, to have this great salvation. And then lastly, chapter 34, um, uh, we read in, earlier that he was going to go over to Mount Nebo. Now in chapter 34, he actually does go up to Mount Nebo. And um, there he is, his life will, will come to an end. Um, what we find out is nobody knows where he is buried. So um, this man of God, faithful, seeing God face to face um, as uh, a friend, um, passes away. But um, nobody else is going to have this kind of closeness that... Um, uh, Moses experience verse 10 but since there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face and all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh before all his servants and in all his land and all the mighty power all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel and truly the Ten Commandments and the Red Sea and the manna from heaven and the ground opening up and swallowing the sons of Korah and it goes on and on, all these great and mighty displays. So there was no other prophet that had arisen that had this kind of intimacy with the Lord. But what does, and this is a closing thought here, what about for you? How close can you get to, to the Lord today? You're like, well, yeah, Moses is first in line, and I'm somewhere down. Well, let's read a passage that we've talked about not so many weeks ago on Sunday morning. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. Yeah, Moses didn't have this. By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What? We get to come behind the veil. And we come with an unveiled face, it says in other places, to behold the glory of God. When, Mo when Moses saw the face of God and he came back to Israel, what happened to his face? Do you guys remember? 100-watt light bulb, right? Halogen shining bulb. But, you know, the next day he was about 95 watt. And about a month later he was down to about 50 watt. And then, you know, like three months later he's like a lamp, you know, a little nightlight kind of a guy. And so it, that, that, that faded. So what did he do? He put a veil over his face after the, see the 100 watt, boom, dropped the veil. So that they always saw him as one that was radiating the glory of God. But what the writer, what Paul tells us is that that's what happened to him. But for us, we go from, not from glory to fade, back to glory to fade. We go from what? Glory to glory. 
So while that might be the case for the Old Testament saints, for us, you have, I have, we have the opportunity to go behind the veil and meet with Jesus even better than Moses. And so it comes down to us. We do the things we want to do. I don't like that any more than you do. I I wish there could be a really good excuse for why I'm not closer to the Lord than I am. But the reality is, here's the reality. Each of us are as close with Jesus today as we have chosen to be. Not want to be. Because I will tell you where I want to be is not exactly where I've chosen to be. I have not attained. I've got to press on. And I think all of us probably feel the same way. But, you know, we can make that choice tonight. We can make that choice tomorrow morning. We can make that choice for the rest of our life to come behind the veil and to see the glory of the Lord. Worship team, you can stay where you are. Let me just close in prayer here. And let's uh, set our hearts on seeking the face of God. Lord, thank you for this word that has come to us. And while it is a lot of it, Lord, it just doesn't have any direct meaning to our lives today. We see the principles. We see the truth. We see the fulfillment of prophecy. We see the image and the shadow of your son, Jesus. And we're thankful for this book. But Lord, may we close out our time with uh, considering this great servant, Moses, of deciding that we're going to be a a face-to-face servant of yours as well. So Lord, may it become the thing we want and not in the thing we choose, not just the thing we want, is to be close with you and to know you better next week than we know you today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for this amazing invitation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.